0: Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I am Dominic Grace. And I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are continuing our conversation about the films of Akira Kurosawa with Stray Dog and The Bad Sleep Well, two films that I think are kind of in dialogue with each other. In fact, two films that I really feel now are in dialogue with really all the films we've seen by Kurosawa. I think we've watched either 11 or 12 together and at this point you're really starting to see a lot of the kind of continuity between the films. In fact, it popped up on my Letterbox, you know, tracks like which actors you've seen the most movies by and um Takeshi Shimura is now in my top 5.
1: <laughs> yeah, there He's were quite a, a few way to watch. There were quite a few uh familiar Kurosawa faces in these films. The bad sleep well, God. It's like a who's who of great Japanese actors from that period.
0: Yeah, both films really are a who's who. Uh, so yeah, let me let me expand on what I mean by them being in dialogue with each other in Kurosawa's history, because um, and uh, maybe this will trigger how we want to look at these. Although we can go whatever direction. Um, so obviously, *Stray Dog* takes place during the American occupation before things start to transform and it's very much a satire or a look at the world that's really um, looking backwards rather than looking forwards, right? Because it's still a depiction of the devastated Tokyo, of a country, society, people who are devastated by what they're experiencing. And in fact, uh, the villain of the piece that we'll talk about, I'm sure quite a bit, um, is really a product of uh, the post uh, of the events of the war, the devastation, the private, privations, the uh, lack of housing, and everything. Uh, by the time we get to the dead sleep, well, we're in a world that's been transformed, really, just in the space of ten years, really, and to a much more corporate-based world. Where there is this undercurrent of, you know, obviously there's some poverty and some suffering in that world, but really we're up on the higher echelon that's scarcely imaginable ten years earlier that's why i feel like these two films are somewhat in dialogue with each other because we get kind of the the before and the after and uh something happens in between
2: yeah and they're both filmed filtered through a noir sensibility which also creates a certain uh sort of a visual continuity between them in, in terms of the stylistic choices uh that are made um and uh, interestingly for me anyway both of them, this is not surprising in noir, of course, but both of them are more morally complex or ambiguous than you might think in a revenge story uh, or in a police procedural story where normally you get very binary kinds uh, kinds of constructions.
1: Yeah, and that's especially seen in the relationship in Stray Dog, for example, the relationship between the police and the criminal elements is extremely close. I mean, They're on first name basis and rather intimate with one another, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it's you know, one of the central elements of the film is that it invites us very explicitly to, to see uh, a link or a connection between, uh, between Yusa and, uh, and Murakami. I mean, they're on opposite sides, obviously, legally, but we're explicitly invited to see them as also being linked or connected, you know uh, Murakami saying, you know, I had the same experience that he had. Him having his, his bag stolen on the train was sort of like the last straw for him. And you know Murakami, the same thing happened to me. I could have turned to robbery then, but instead I made I made a different choice. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but when I was watching the you know the, the climactic showdown between them where they're chasing each other and fighting, there were some shots where you couldn't entirely tell which one was which. Um, so it really, it really does invite you to, to not buy into the sort of binary that, uh, that Sato talks about, like Sato is a very clear point of view. There's, there's good guys and there's bad guys, and you've got to harden yourself to that. And you've got to recognize and you can't sympathize with them. Um, and like normally we, we, we think he's the character that we should be trusting on this. He's the, he's the mentor. He's the senior cop. He's the guy that's like teaching the young guy, but I don't think the film is that simple. Uh, it, it really invites us to uh, to question that. I was especially taken by that final scene. I think it's the final scene where 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 they're in the hospital room. Yeah. And uh, and Sato tells him, you know, look at the window. And Sato holds up the mirror so he can see out the window. So they're both seeing the same thing, but they're seeing a reverse image of it. Mm. Right. Um, so they're they're like on the same side but how they view this post-war Jap- Japan, as you were talking about earlier, Jason, is filtered through different experiences and has led them in effect down different paths in terms of how they're able to, to cope with it or deal with it. So it's not that you know, like simple, let's go catch the bad guy and reestablish justice that you expect in a police story. Um, so I, f- I found that a really interesting facet of the film is that we weren't, uh, we weren't allowed just to see Yusa as, as a villain even though obviously he does terrible things and we weren't allowed to just to see him as a villain, but we were invited to sympathize with him to some extent and to recognize the extent to which he has made choices, but he has also been put in situations and contexts in which making the moral choice, making the ethical choice, making the choice to behave in a way that is societally endorsed is very difficult to make. Mm-hmm. um i mean the whole extended sequence when murakami disguises himself and goes wandering through the black market was i think really revelatory about you know the the, the context out of which yusa emerged um and uh just what he was up against you know the all the all that Im- you know, the images of uh decay and destruction um and privation uh that 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 Murakami is sort of dipping into to try to track down his uh, his gun, um, but it's real. Well, I mean, it, it's filmic, but it, it's you know, it's it's the real context out of which Yusa emerges. So it's it's he, he discovers more than just like the facts he needs to try to track down the gun. He, or in fact, sees uh, the 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 the, uh, the context that shaped Yusa. I think.
1: Your Sorry, I'm said- stop no uh, Usa you very interesting uh, very interesting yeah you is uh, is definitely portrayed as a product of his environment and i'm i was reminded of the that brechtian uh that line from what is it die Spieler? food first then morals
2: yes mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. it's definitely a play in this film. <clears throat> And I think uh, Mifune's character, uh, what is his name again? I'm sorry. Uh, I just on the tip my tongue. Um, Murakami. Murakami. Murakami, yeah. Yeah, right. Shimura Sato. I, I think initially he, he goes into, at the beginning of the film, he has this rather dichotomous view yeah. of human nature. It's very black and white. And, you know, he's the rookie cop. And really, the the film is just an unraveling of that, of that predisposition he has to view the world that way, and and you get it through his his experiences and his investigation, but you also get it by virtue of the experience of uh, the police officer, um, the older police officer whose name also escapes me at this moment. Sato. 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 Thank you. Um, who has obviously been a police officer for much longer than he has, and so has a much different worldview, uh, a more sympathetic worldview. He's definitely more sympathetic to the individuals who he is investigating. And he understands that in order to be a police officer and to navigate that world, he has to be, in some sense, in. in he, he has to be, in some sense, willing to forego uh, any kind of moral judgments toward the people whom he's investigating. Um, just by think- virtue, ju- just by virtue of being able to successfully navigate that world, and and. To get people to open up and tell him things, mm-hmm. he has to gain their trust. And yeah, the, uh, the, pop, the popsicle and cigarette scene, yeah, <laughs> right.
0: School, so they're and just cigarette. sitting together and chatting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Magical scene, really captures so much yeah. in it. Yeah, I think the key to the characters comes from this idea of après-gear they talk mm-hmm. about when they're um, hanging out at Sato's house. But first of all, like, we have no idea Sato even has any sort of a personal life. Mm-hmm. So when he they kind of go over this hill and the, as the sun is setting and we see the children run up and visit him, like, I felt this tremendous sense of relief. Like, we're getting a moment away from the drama and we get some sort of depth to them. And then when they're chatting over their drinks and food about uh, how those who went through the war, lived through the war, and the war was their main forming experience... Are completely different from the people who had been before that you know experienced life before that that really captures something kind of deeper about these characters and who they are and you know i love about you but also something i could certainly relate to in my own life is this kind of idea of generational experience being so informed about who you are and how you perceive the world
2: yeah yeah it's, it's a key scene not if, if not least because in, in the sort of the oppressive world that you normally expect uh, in noir where everything is shades of gray and moral ambiguity and nihilism and pessimism. Yeah. We have this domestic tranquility where he's got these kids. And I just love that scene where the they're looking in on the sleeping children and he calls, he calls, uh, um, uh, he calls Mir Kami over to, to look. I mean, this guy's never even met these kids before. Right. And he comes yeah. and he looks at them. And it's one of the few times in the film you see this big smile on his face yeah. looking um, at, at these kids. And you look they're like a pumpkin field. It's, it's, a, it's a moment of real relief in the midst of what's you know a pretty intense and grim story. Um, and it's not the kind of thing you often get in noir. But if anything, it makes it even more effective because it brings home the alternative to that bleak world.
1: The contrast.
2: Yeah. The, the, the potential um, as weighed against the devastation
0: that's a third generation
2: too yeah there's Africa there's
0: post gare and then there's you know it's just in the history books
2: post post-gare. post and post I enemies mean, yeah it's, it's it's kind of echoed I mean it's different kids but like you know at the end after after uh, um, Mira, uh, Murakami and uh, Yusa have have fought it out and then in the background the kids go by singing mm-hmm um, and that's a, that's a motif, I mean, it reminded me a lot of the ending of Seven Samurai, where after this terrible, terrible conflict, we have that scene with uh, the, the rice being harvested and everyone singing in the rice field while the, you know, the heroes look on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I didn't know this when I first watched the movie, it was only when I started looking it up, but I didn't realize that the guy who played, <laughs> the guy who played Yusa uh, was, was in uh, Seven Samurai. Yeah. Um, and he played the, uh, what was his name? Uh, the, the young one, uh, the young Oops. idealistic one. Right. Mm-hmm. Chopper, right? Yeah. And uh, one of the things that's always really struck me of the many things in Seven Samurai um, is that when you know the final villain is killed, rather than celebration, his character drops to his knees and cries out in anguish. Um, and I'm not sure if this was anything that, was at all part of Kurosawa's, you know, thinking. Uh, but you know, that kind of happens when he's beat here too, right? he's beat, he's handcuffed, and these kids go by. And then we go into this devastating scene of him just crying and crying and crying in anguish. And you you know that what he's what he's feeling is is what he, what he's done has cost him, right? Uh that it's it's not been an achievement, that it's been a loss uh and that you know that that's one of those things about kurosawa that always really impresses me is how he can find these surprising ways of having characters respond to a situation not how you would expect, right you expect the hardened criminal who's literally just shot a cop and fought uh not to to break down and weep with 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 you know remorse uh at what he's done and what it's cost him and it, it, it really brings home one of those things we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is, uh, you know, adjacent. Uh, Eric, you're talking about sympathy uh, that 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 the film had, and even even the title. I mean, I, I, I was the moment in the film where uh, Sato is talking about you know the difference between the stray dog, stray dog, and a rabbit dog. Right? Mm-hmm. The film's not called Rabbit Dog; it's called right. Stray Dog. Right? So it doesn't. The film itself doesn't invite us to see him. Um, as the rabid dog, as 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 the sick dog, that mm-hmm. is a, a, a plague on society, and devices to see him as the stray, the the, the outcast, on the, that that's that's that, that's wandered and is at loose ends, um, because there's a suggestion there of the possibility of redemption,
0: that no longer has a master. Yeah, yeah, which is like such
2: a, a key part of the war effort, right? right. Yeah,
1: the like a, like the, a Ronin,
2: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, like a Ronin.
1: Well, also the stray dogs tend to. Stray dogs tend to uh, be defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So his his criminality, in a way, is a form of self-defense, survival.
2: Yeah, and it's, it, it isn't even really actuated by, uh, by viciousness. It's actuated by the desire to give something nice to the girl, right? Right. Um, I mean, a stupid thing, because where's she going to wear it? What's she going to do with it? But right. uh, it's uh, it, it it doesn't emerge in contrast to, you know, some of the other criminal stuff like, you know, the the, the pickpockets, mm-hmm. stealing the gun and, and, you know, basically preying on uh, on, on the community. He's uh, he's 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 not he doesn't have a criminal mind, I guess you'd say. Right. He rents the gun to give the dress as a gift. It's yeah. uh,
0: a little Jean Valjean in a way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, and he's also coming out of this context where, you know, as we saw in the market, the black market is rampant, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there's, a, and the crime is overall in society is rampant, rampant at the same time. So he's in this milieu where, you know, a, as, uh, as Murakami tells us, you could easily go either way. Yeah. And it's so easy to just fall into that, especially, you know, when you've come back from the war, when you have no money no support you build this completely ramshackle house um you know you have other mouths to feed um it, it's a rational decision to do everything you can to scramble and keep yourself alive
1: yeah um, it's I not think disregard it's, whatever psychological trauma he right he acquired in the war i mean it was a brutal war mm. especially on the part of the japanese
0: not only was it a brutal war but there was um anger from the general Japanese public about the treatment the Japanese soldiers, uh, you know, compi- committed to other Asians during the war, right? Uh, you know, the for example, the Philippine, the oppression mm-hmm. of the Philippine people was like an enormous, uh, painful gash in their lives, you know, mm-hmm. uh, probably 20 times worse than what we went through with Vietnam
2: veterans returning
1: they also were not returning as heroes like yeah. american soldiers or russian soldiers
2: yeah and they're, they're returning as, as losers basically in, in a context in which you know the ideological push through the war you know made returning home as a loser uh almost unendurable
1: right uh, i mean particularly for a culture like japan which yeah depends so much uh, a person's personal self-sense of sense of self-worth depends so much upon honor yeah not just at a not just on a smaller social level but also on a on a national level as well Identify. and
0: they had had that drilled into them from like 1936 for the end of the war yeah right so this is the context that the uh that the apre Guerre folks lived with um so i was gonna they made me thinking then so eric you were talking about for the breakdown Yusa has at the end um do you think it's despair do you think it's i don't know what 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 do you think the emotion is he's feeling at that point
1: like dom was the one who mentioned it okay so i'd love to get dom's (laughs) to that question
2: um i yeah i think it's I'm, i'm not sure maybe despair is a little bit strong but i think it's you know it's uh it's a, you know, a stark realization, you know, this is over. I, I've, I've crossed a line and you know, you can't cross back over it. And I mean, one of the, one of the really fascinating things for me about the movie is how long the film withholds us even seeing him at all. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the film is like three quarters over before we even get a, get a, get a look at him. And it's just his legs coming down the stairs. Um, so he's this this unseen. This other one of the links actually between the two films is the unseen evil, the thing that is you know hidden, um, and that makes it really easy, like not to sympathize, right? He's just this. All we know about him is he's he's shot somebody, and now he's he's murdered somebody else. This is actually when I watched the uh, the DVD commentary, the the commentator on the DVD said he raped and murdered her, and I was thinking, I don't recall anything in the movie that suggested that he. Raped her, or maybe I missed something. But I mean, certainly he murdered her. Uh, yeah, that
0: struck so he, me the same way because I watched yeah. that same commentary, I'm sure, the yeah. criterion commentary.
2: But even so, like when he's got Murakami in his sights, he hesitates, mm. right? You can see him like winding yep. himself up to fire the gun. He's not, you know, uh, he's not um, a sociopath. He's not hardened.
1: Uh, so, he's not even
2: a good shot. No, he's not even a good shot. No. He's <laughs> <laughs> three shots, and he only managed just to wing him once. Yeah, <laughs> right. hits the tree a couple times. Yeah, yeah like, like ten feet away. So yeah, I think that it's you know, it's despair, right? You know, I, I I've 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 crossed the line. I can't uncross. I've been caught. My life was bad enough as it was, but I mean, now the future is foreclosed, right? right. There's there's nothing left, um, and uh, you know, rather than you know that's the shrug of callous indifference that, that the sort of assumed hardness that you, you would expect of a, of a noir villain. Um, we get this, 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 this stark outpouring of, uh, of, of grief and regret. I mean, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems to me that what we're seeing there is him lamenting what he's allowed himself to do and become. And it's not just because he's been caught because it isn't until he hears the children singing and he looks up at the flowers and the sky and he hears the children singing that we get that, which harkens back to that earlier scene in the movie where uh, the, the pickpocket, uh, not the, the yeah, I think it's the pickpocket woman says to you Nurikami, know, look up at the sky. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, Kurosawa loves his weather imagery, obviously, as we, as we all know. Um, okay. So that, you know, it, it's, it's not that he's been caught, I think. Obviously the fact that he's been caught is part of it, but that he's been caught and now he realizes this is gonna take the world away from me. It's gonna take uh, the future away from me as represented by the, the, the singing children walking by in the background. Um, and that leads to this despairing, this existential whale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the film isn't, I don't think the film is as nihilistic as, uh, as the bad sleep well. But certainly it, 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 you know, it gives a very grim outlook for, for, for use's future and his recognition of that, I think. But I'm certainly curious as to what you guys thought of that too.
1: It's definitely more of a humanistic, yeah. humanist Kurosawa film. And you mentioned that scene, that wonderful scene where he goes to Kato's home and visits with his wife and children and how that provides kind of a counterpoint to the you know to the degradations of of the uh, criminal life and the and the poverty endemic poverty and so on and it's underscored there that he's this cop Cotto, mm-hmm. who's been a police officer for quite some time still lives in in what is pretty much a shack yeah so it's sort of implied that there really isn't money to go around really i mean that uh the criminal element and the non-criminal element are inhabiting the same uh pri- world of privation yeah post-war privation it's affecting everyone equally yeah to some extent um but kato is able to sort of carve out this this sanctuary from that um, the space of love and and kindness and peace uh, that is not afforded by you know um, by the so-called bad guy of the of the film and you know that that to me is just an, the ultimate expression of Kurosawa's humanism. Yeah, uh, he t- tends to view everybody from the same footing regardless of what their class or station is which is very interesting for a Japanese filmmaker where class distinctions are so important in society that he's able to somehow see beyond that and in that sense I, I think he's is rightly described as one of the more western Japanese filmmakers because he's borrowed from United States and from Russia uh, the sense of class awareness and the ability to see all people as sort of um, interchangeable in that sense they're not they're not like fixed in their positions in the world
0: and in terms of the empathy I couldn't help but think of D- Dodesca den as well right you know um, he, he, he wants to depict life the way it is and show people's lives the way they're actually living it. Um, he does not seem, I'll put it a different way. He's certainly class conscious, right? Mm-hmm. And we see that in High and Low, among other films. And there's allusions to that in uh, The Bad Sleep Well, too. Uh, yeah. But he he treats it as just one of the larger elements of the society he wants to depict. And it becomes this area where he shows this empathy. Yeah, I like what you're saying about that, where he kind of seems to have this kind of universal empathy for people's lives as they're living them, not some sort of aspirational life or, um, you know, a life is uh, idealized life, but life as it's actually lived. And I think yeah. that's kind of part of the reason why we feel so much empathy for Yusa too, it's, you know, and I think the one of the key reasons why we get that eight and a half minute scene um, in the market, and the, the yeah. scene where, where um, the woman gets followed because he wants us to see life as it's actually being lived at that
1: time. Mm-hmm. Well, that concluding scene where they're struggling in the field of flowers and grass and uh, dumb observed how at times during that struggle you can't tell one from the other and i would say that in that that final shot or one of the one of the final shots of the film um the two of them are both laying down and they're both panting, and they're both sort of in the same position
2: similar position yeah
1: yeah they're almost totally interchangeable but they're also on the same level
2: And they're both wearing white i mean you don't have that that usual you know good guy bad guy opposition between black and white they're both wearing white but they're also now both like spattered with the mud and the dirt
1: yeah Uh, they're they're sort of
2: equally 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 marked by by their situation and by their struggle
1: you couldn't better illustrate their interchangeability if you tried is my yeah well i like
2: that
0: too they're both marked by the struggle yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's touched them in a way that um altered the way you see them and the way they see themselves that's also one of the things I've found so interesting about this film is Murakami really grows like a Mm -hmm. character in a novel in this film
1: yeah there's a wonderful sense of development in this film
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: characters developing and I mean for what is ostensibly the first buddy cop movie it's
2: Yeah. And another another notch in it's Kurosawa's cool.
1: innovation belt, eh? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it, it's got it, it, it's it's uh, very smart. Yes, uh, and very multi layered, as you would expect from from Kurosawa.
0: I kept wanting it to be like Lethal Weapon or something. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's very, it's yeah, yeah. As Eric says, it's 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 you know often seen as like the first buddy cop movie, um, right. and it is. I mean, it's, you know, you watch it, it sure is. But it doesn't the the the, the, con, the conventions of the buddy cop movie that developed afterwards mm-hmm. discard a lot of what actually makes this film interesting. Mm-hmm. It yeah. seems to me. I mean, yeah, exactly. the buddy cop film doesn't necessarily throw away the like you're just like me thing, but it becomes much more of a of a of a cliche. And much mm-hmm. less of a social commentary in in like *Lethal Weapon* or something like that, um, where uh, Jason, you were talking before about empathy. I think one of the things that I find really interesting about Kurosawa is he's a very deeply empathetic uh, filmmaker, but he's not a sentimental filmmaker. He doesn't romanticize any of it, right? Um, we're not really uh, we're, we're we're invited to 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 feel sympathy, to feel connection, but we aren't given the you know the the the, the you know the lob balls you often get in movies that that allow you to, to to go out of the movie with a smug sense of satisfaction that you've seen uh justice served or you know um the sentimentalizing of uh of the, the criminals or whatever in in a way that uh, that that defangs any kind of social commentary you know the kind of thing that to to step a bit of field i always find so irritating in in dickens um, for all that he is trying very hard to make serious social commentary, he's just so bloody sentimental mm. that I personally find it alienating. I, w- I would much rather have, and this, you know, you know the, the way Kurosawa often shoots things really invites that, you know, where you don't get an awful lot of close-ups. You get a lot, a lot of mid-distance shots or, or deep focus shots where you're not allowed just to focus on one thing. You have to be aware of the whole context. Um, of, of the action um and there's other things going on right i mean uh just one minor example in this film which really struck me when i was watching it is the scene in the hotel where we have in the background you know sat on the phone with calling in the apb and in the foreground is focusing on you know the, the 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 woman turning on the radio and then the owner of the hotel coming over and flirting with her and clearly you know Involved in a in a in a in an illicit relationship with this woman because his wife is over somewhere else with with the baby, and it's like this has nothing to do with the plot of the movie, but it has everything to do with Kurosawa's desire to give you the world um, mm-hmm. and to let you look at it, um, and to and to look at it from enough of a distance that you can empathize, I think, without sentimentalizing. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's it's brilliant for building the. The tension, because like we know what's coming, right? We've, I think we've already seen the feet on the stairs at that point, point. Um, and uh, it's just it's just brilliant, brilliant filmmaking, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree with the commentator was talking about how it that the whole scene just builds and builds and builds when the phone is just hanging down yeah. the wire and we're just waiting for something to happen. Uh, yeah, the, the scene just kind
2: of you're so desperate for a payoff. And again, Kurosawa withholds it. We don't see him get shot. Mm -hmm. We hear it through the the phone at at a distance and we see the aftermath. We don't actually see um, uh, any of the crimes in the film. We only hear about them afterwards. That's something that really struck me is that we never see
0: Sato attacked at all. I can't think of any other film that has one of their lead characters um have violence against him but they cut away at that point i think if you ever saw that happen it would be a, seen as a flaw in the film
2: what but about in the bad case... sleep well though <laughs> yeah. what about the bad sleep well on that front though <laughs> well there you go
1: well i think uh reservoir dogs does that doesn't it uh, okay. yeah okay yeah you hear that you hear the gunshots and you can yeah.
2: infer that mr pink has been shot outside and then you cut to yeah. black before we actually see hardy keitel's character mr white get shot
1: you never see the jewel heist yeah yeah uh, all right
0: I'll take, I'll
1: okay. take that but it's,
2: it, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not a common choice because it's a very daring choice yeah because it violates our expectation of what cinema is about cinema is supposed to be about showing you things not withholding things right um right. and you know to me that's one of the geniuses of, of a great director like Kurosawa um, or, or Tarantino for that matter is that they, they, they can make these very daring choices and not give you what you think you should get, what you're expecting to get. Um, and it can be, and we, I think we talked about this when we were talking about Akira, right? Where we suddenly have this temporal gap, right? Um, and wait a minute, what happened? He's, he's dead, it's like months later? Um, that, yeah, you know, I think we talked about it at the time is you know at the time Kurosawa himself wasn't sure that, can we really kill the protagonist halfway through the movie? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but you know, the the director who's willing to do that to me is is the one who's got you know the the capacity for greatness. I and mean, certainly with some case like Kurosawa, he achieves it.
0: Good point of transition, I think, is to talk about how tremendous these lead actors are. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I could I, I have watched uh, Mifune and Shimura together for days now. Um, <laughs> And um, both of them, and Esayo Kimura as well as Yusa, uh, yeah. the little bits we get of him are powerful. Um, but the Mifune and Shimura are just forces of nature in these films.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're. Uh, I've. I think I might have commented on this before. I think. I think Mifune is one of the great film actors.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. No. No. No question whatsoever. Uh, his range and his skill and his naturalism on screen are just breathtaking. every Every character, you know like you watch Robert De Niro, for example, mm-hmm. and you, you never forget that you're watching Robert De Niro yeah. or Jack Nicholson or any of these other uh, actors who are kind of synonymous with filmmakers or um, have a persona, an on-screen persona that they've refined, and it's brilliant for what it is, but Mifune just completely transformed himself into whatever character he was playing, almost like alchemy. Uh, It's really something to see. And in some cases, I'll watch a film and it will take me some time to realize that I'm watching Mifune. Yeah. Because he's almost unrecognizable.
0: I bought him so much in this film as being the young guy who uh, was excited by his ability to shoot so well at the police academy, right? And I bought him so well as this guy who's, you know, so rack with guilt about losing his gun, especially when the murder is committed with the gun, and he's, you know, this deep feeling person, and this very strange way he becomes both deeper and more shallow as the movie goes along, because he realized the gun was just a mechanism. It isn't necessarily a reflection of him. Uh, But he also understands the world. He lives in a deeper way. It's a really challenging um, story that he has to go through, a complicated arc, and he handles it so gracefully, and he always commands the screen.
1: Oh, yeah. Let me ask you guys something, Mm -hmm. just as an aside. Is the gun a MacGuffin?
2: Hmm. Uh, I I see what you're getting. I don't think it is because it is actually central to the plot. Okay. I mean, they. It. You know, it's not like the Maltese Falcon. We're really. It could have been anything, right? right. You know. Um, That's
1: true. That's true. Although,
2: yeah, it's. Uh, it is. It is more of a plot mechanism than anything. It's. It's interesting because I was thinking about it. I was thinking stolen gun movies, right? I mean. <laughs> Winchester 73 came out like one year later, and I've always thought of that as the quintessential stolen gun movie, but you know, Kurosawa beat it by a year. Yeah.
1: Well, more than it, it's uh, Winchester 73 came out a year after straight yeah, up
2: 1950. Yep. Oh, okay. The original version, not the, not the remake.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, it, it's a plot device. Yeah. Excuse so the pun, but it, <laughs> it, it, it's not a terribly o- overused one. No.
0: I mean, it's used also to kind of show this whole idea of renting guns mm. and and using them as a mechanism and then having it be the th- the thing that pulls us into the whole underworld like it's I see how it could be seen as a MacGuffin, absolutely but it's too, I think it's too meaningful to the plot as True. a gun itself
1: right in and of itself you know the whole idea of renting by the way in in Japan uh i'm I'm sure you're aware that for quite some time, uh, the manga rental market was very big. Uh, People could not afford to purchase, let alone store all of that manga in their tiny little apartments. So renting books uh, was sort of the thing to do. Um, There is quite a bit of renting going on in Japanese society, just by virtue of the fact that uh, people have lower incomes and smaller homes.
0: Well, I I'm not sure if I can relate to having too many books. I don't think either of you can either. It's not a nah. problem in my life. I, so oh, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, so you said you you said Mafune is um, a bit of a chameleon for you, and sometimes you can't pick him out. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I saw him in the bad sleep, well, I was wondering how he was going to figure into the plot. And uh, part of my mental game watching this film, which I had never seen before, was to figure out what's Mifune's long game? Because he's clearly not an assistant. He's clearly not the secretary. There's something else happening there. And so yeah. um, this is a little bit of what I'm saying. I feel like these films are a little bit in dialogue with themselves, with each other, and with the other films, Kurosawa, made, because you know an actor like Mifune is not going
2: to be wasted in any way. No, and one of the things I really found interesting about the Bad Sleep on in that regard is Mifune is, he's a great screen actor, but he's a very dynamic physical actor most of the time. Um, but so much of the bad sleep well depends upon stillness and silence. These shots where he's just in the background, <coughs> you know, but you can like the wedding scene, right? He doesn't say a word completely silent, um, but he's there. Uh, or like some of the office scenes where he's just like there in the background, you know, watching when, uh, Oh, what's his name? The, the one with the, the briefcase who's being set up for sending the money like Mithun is just sitting in the, at the desk behind him. Um, and we never really, we don't really get much of you know that uh, that uh, that that visceral, active screen presence that we expect from Mafuni. It's, it's a much more controlled and restrained performance, um, which is an interesting, to me anyway, interesting because as you guys no doubt are aware, um, there are debts to Hamlet in the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And Hamlet's strategy is basically like radical self-display, right? acting mad um, and being like very big um, and uh, in, in this film the, 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 the act opposite is basically to disappear right it's to be there but have the focus on everything else but you you know worm your way in um, and uh, then just put, put things in motion and watch which is brilliant yes I think
0: it's another uh, social satire film as well. Mm. As soon as as soon as we get this whole thing at the very beginning about uh, corruption among the social agency, um, you could really see that Kurosawa is playing with another major social ill that he is frustrated with. Um, I apparently he took pains to not actually have it be based upon a true story, but this whole story about uh, the corruption of the giant corporation. And them forcing their people to commit suicide or not commit suicide, is so rich and delicious and wonderful. I mean, uh, uh, Straight Dog was a, a fantastic noir, but I think uh, Bad Sleep Well was like really much more of a true noir.
1: It was probably yeah. so common, and it was probably so common in Japan at the time that there was probably no fear on his part that it would be specifically linked to any one <laughs> incident. Yeah.
0: I mean, in yeah. that, like, noir is really about um, the corruption of, of internal societies and networks, about the, ver- you know, the, the intense uh, greediness, the fact that people are always out for their own self-interest, and often about the one person who sees it as their mission to take them down, but ends up becoming morally compromised along the way. Yeah. I mean, this really feels like a true noir to me.
2: Yeah, I think, and I, one of the things that I was when I was thinking about our discussion we're going to have tonight, I was thinking about the connections between them. And one of the things I found when I was watching uh, Stray Dogs*, great as it is, um, and interesting as it is, is there were many shots where I'm thinking, "Yeah, I've basically seen this shot in a 1940s American noir film." Um, he's, 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 he's. I, I'm saying, I don't say he's like plagiarizing or ripping off, but he's basically not he's, he's taking the convention that is just there, right? Like the, the, I think it's a scene in the police station where you, where you get the, 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 the Venetian blinds and yeah. the light coming through them. It's like, yeah, yeah, we've seen this. This is not, you know um, but the bad sleep well, and perhaps cause it's like 10 years later, it's just technically so much more proficient. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it uses those noir tropes, but I never felt when I was watching it, like I was basically just, you know, seeing a, a, an American noir film filtered through a Japanese sensibility. I felt like I was watching a, a film that was its own thing entirely.
1: Stray Dog is very tactile. You know, you have all those yeah. heat elements. It's just yeah, yeah. extremely oh, yeah. hot rainy season in Japan. And so people are constantly sweating and patting their foreheads and, and you get a real sense of, of the oppressiveness of the of the natural environment, whereas in bad sleep, well, it's almost like this. Uh, in it's almost like this. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, an environment that has no contamination. Uh,
2: <laughs>
1: sterile, sterile environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is sort of meant to, I guess, um, physically convey the sterility of these people's, you know, uh, moral. <laughs> lives you know that they're they're just essentially i mean like that opening scene for example of the wedding oh, yeah. and nobody is smiling no one is having a good time <laughs> they're all they all have this like they're all just sort of like you know heads bowed unsmiling um they all look miserable they're none of them are looking at one another there's no sort of kind of like real human contact taking place everything is very kind of like just sort of like uh, by the book and um, uh, it just seems very like uh, emotionless. Uh, like they're just going through the motions. They're doing their job. Ceremony. Yeah, it's the ceremony is ceremonial. You know, And they're just
0: playing, it's, here comes the bride. It's an American style wedding.
1: It's an American style wedding, right. And uh, you don't get any sense that these people are at all sort of like connected to each other in any real way. They're all just sort of cut off from one another and they're within whatever position that they are on the chessboard, if you will.
0: Straight Talk yeah. is a very emotionally warm film. A lot of emotions there and they're really on the surface. You have uh, you know, a lot of, it's almost operatic at times. And the weather... It really adds to that. I'm glad you brought it up because it was in my notes that so I really wanted to talk about the weather as this trope, you know, because it is, you know, a key Kurosawa trope. But it also the way he uses it in Stray Dog is maybe a little more common than the way he uses it, the sterility and the bad sleep well, because um, this really yeah, but- also reminded me of Mifune's house in High and Low, where he's up on the tower, hermetically sealed from the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's very good, Jason. Absolutely. That's, that's what I was going to mention. That difference between that closed contained environment, you know, like where the windows don't even open, right? It's her almost like hermetically sealed environment versus the environment of the, of the, uh, the low, you know, of the, of the, uh, the lower classes, which is almost completely out in the open i mean they live in these ramshackle huts where the the wind and the rain and everything penetrates it you know they're just completely uh uh out there in nature and you get that same distinction between stray dog where so much of it is exterior shots yeah yeah whereas in the bad sleep well it's almost entirely interior shots
2: yeah absolutely yeah even if it's like a spacious palatial interior, you're still enclosed. It's got a much more claustrophobic feel. And especially, yeah. you know, the 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 hideout, right? Where they're literally in this subterranean uh, right. environment. Um, which is kind of an interesting, you know, metaphor for what's behind all that, you know, mm-hmm. sterile office environment. The
1: well, I know, even though it's destroyed and in shambles, you yeah. you can't even hardly hear the person in the next room. There's these yeah. enormous heavy doors in between everyone and and so yeah. on. So in that way, there's, just, there's there's just a constant barrier between people, either emotionally or physically.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: The few scenes where the movie gets really hot with emotion are the like the scene where um, he's going to try and shove the guy out the window. Oh yeah. Uh, which I I was on the edge of my seat the, the during that whole sequence. Uh, that was just brilliant and just incredibly rough to see
1: the window I, that his father was thrown out
0: of the window yeah. his father was thrown out of that's kind of that is a, i think that is more of a MacGuffin, by the way i think the window in this movie is a little more of a mcguffin than the gun in uh the other film yeah
2: yeah it's uh it's a nice visual effect though the the, uh, when, the when the wedding cake comes in with the flower coming out of the one window Right, Um, or that the brief exterior shot when they're up in that room, and you see the flashlight in the window. Uh, Beautiful again, you know, Kurosawa's uh, mastery of you know the visual uh, being so important to uh, to his films that yeah, you have to look. You can't just like listen and follow the story. You have to actually pay attention to what you're seeing on the screen. You know, right? There's all these brilliant with that
1: visual clues and cues. Now, did we know about that? uh window did we know the significance of that when they brought the cake out i don't think we did yet as viewers
2: no i don't think we did um i don't remember if the if 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 there was dialogue among the reporters at that point that mentioned the suicide but i can't
1: recall um it certainly hadn't
2: been foregrounded yet i think it's you know it's only later when uh isn't it when he actually drags him into the office and says this is the window that my father went out that it becomes clear I mean, I think I think I already knew because I'd read some stuff about the film first, and that's a bad idea. You should experience the film without, <laughs> right. without knowing stuff yeah. in advance,
1: right? I think you knew his father had been killed and had been in that conspiracy of three and that the reporters were sort of suggesting that. But I don't think you understood the significance necessarily of the window until much later.
0: That I mean, could sick, be wrong. No, I it think that's be, intentional, sure. though. I think it sticks in your mind as just one of these things that's unresolved. Why are they mm-hmm. reacting this way? why is right. this why is this this thing i was kind of thrown off by the wedding itself at the very beginning too why is he marrying this woman who has you know, obviously was injured in the war or something um who are these people why like you like you were saying why are they why is this like the least fun wedding i've ever seen anywhere
1: another yeah. major inspiration uh uh francis ford coppola said that that opening wedding sequence like the first 30 minutes of the film is the most perfect filmmaking he's ever seen and that cemented his decision to begin the godfather with a wedding sequence so yet another <laughs> example of...
0: slightly more passionate wedding sequence i gotta say right.
1: <laughs> just slightly a little more, bit but, but yet another example of kurosawa's you know major impact on popular culture mm-hmm.
2: uh yeah sorry go ahead
0: no you take it tom
2: no, I was just going to say, yeah, that's you know, one of the things that uh, is, is so fascinating about Kurosawa is just how much uh, you see other people taking from him, uh, given that, as we were talking about earlier, you know, especially with stray dogs, he's, he's, he's taking from American uh, conventions and translating them into Japanese terms, then they get turned around and translate back into American terms. Right, the, the the American film Mar becomes the Japanese film Mar becomes the Godfather. what's
0: well, right. this film continually being in dialogue with with each other? Right. Yeah. And what, what I think it was Lucas and was it Lucas and Scorsese and uh, uh, Coppola, who funded helped to fund Kagemusha I think,
1: his, just, I think it was. I think it was film. Yeah, I think it was just Lucas and and Coppola.
2: Okay. scorsese was in akira kurosawa dreams though
1: right yep great cameo (laughs) yeah this van gogh yeah yeah another like i mentioned and uh one of two examples of a character entering into a painting in a kurosawa film (laughs) well we'll get to that eventually right (laughs) right um what did you What what did you? What, what I uh, especially to hear uh, from Dom on this, given his background. But uh, what did you think of the Hamlet influences in this film? Do you think they're substantial enough, or do you think it was a um, rather more cursory influence on the film?
2: I've been thinking about that actually, and I think I was talking to my wife about this, and I, I what I said was, you know, Throne of Blood is much more Macbeth. And Ran is much more King Lear than the bad sleep well is Hamlet. I mean, you can certainly go through and, and pick out the elements, right? Like the uh, the, um, the revenge for the dead father, uh, you know, the, the brother who's really devoted to protecting his sister, um, the, the 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 protagonist who basically um, takes advantage of the sister to pursue his own ends. Um, the the at least the idea of the ghost. Um, right. Uh, you know the, the, the Ophelia going mad at the end. The, the, the analogs are there, but I I think it's far less central to this film than Macbeth is to uh, Throne of Blood or or, or uh, Lear is to to rant. Um, There's a, there's enough that certainly it's easy to recognize that yeah there's 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 things here from uh, uh, from Hamlet, but they're much they seem much more transmuted uh, to me. Um, there there really aren't. Uh, I mean, you can broad parallel, right? Uh, that we have, you know, a, a son whose father has died and he's he's engaged in this, you know, elaborate revenge. But Nishi is, other than that, completely unlike Hamlet, mm-hmm. right? Uh,
1: mm-hmm. He's not accent. tormented. He's not tormented at all. In fact, at no, no. certain times he's he's joking. You know, he's he's laughing about his predicament in a way. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just because he's maybe gone off the deep end a little bit mentally i don't know i don't get that sense he seems like he's in, has unlike hamlet a great deal of self-control and self-awareness
2: absolutely yeah
1: um that even toward the end he's willing to accept his fate if it means that he's able to accomplish his goal
2: absolutely yeah yeah um yeah
1: it's, hamlet, it's driven to almost complete stasis uh, due to inner torment and unable to act at times
2: Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's the revenge convention, right? Right. Is, is, is is that revenger um, torn? Um, And there's no sense of that. I guess the only way that we get any sense of that with Nishi is that his ambivalence about how he's treating his wife, you know, Mm -hmm. that she, she, she began as a prop as, 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 you know, a piece of his deception as a way as a way in, but he's come to develop an emotional attachment to her and he, he struggles uh, Mm -hmm. with that um but that's a very different kind of struggle from hamlet's i mean hamlet's struggle is with with the very idea of taking revenge right. whereas you know right. this film is no revenge we got we got we got to do this revenge thing hey why what the hell's wrong with you why don't you want revenge that's you know um right that's very, very different sensibility from 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 the shakespearean one
1: well he also recognizes his wife's innocence yeah in all of this, yeah. She had yeah when he to do tells that anything. story
2: about
0: her and with wedding night
2: right yeah and that's again totally different from how hamlet relates to ophelia where he suspects that ophelia is in league with polonius and like has has in effect become one of his enemies um so yeah it's uh it's 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 there but i (laughs) i think it's even more attenuated than it's like you know saying that the lion king is hamlet it's even more attenuated than that
1: you think it's it's almost like a kind of like peripheral sort of almost like a I wouldn't say affectation but but kind of like a uh, just sort of like a a a dressing you know yeah uh, just just something to complement it give it a maybe give it a little bit more dramatic depth through these resonances but not necessarily integral to the plot of the film whatsoever really
2: yeah i think so i I, I, to be honest i haven't read any where where kurosawa commented on that but it it really does feel to me like with with throne of blood he was deliberately setting out to take Macbeth. Right. Mm-hmm. do a japanese version of it it very much felt with, with rand like he was taking king lear and turning the japanese version of it here it felt more like he was saying well you know this is a little piece here a little piece here a little piece here they'll fit they'll work but yeah. that that he wasn't he wasn't doing the same thing he was uh, he was he was doing something there 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 are other influences there too um yeah for what it's worth i, I kind of see it the same
0: way yeah uh, you could see uh, dostoevsky in yeah. stray dog but it's not an adaptation of Crime and Punishment.
1: Yeah.
0: Right, you can see existentialist elements in both films, but yeah. neither one is, a, it, they're not anything more than an influence. And I think that also goes to the greatness of Kurosawa that you can see this level of influence yeah. and have it have real resonance because he's creating his own art with a capital A with these films yeah. as opposed yeah. to you know some, some escapism. I didn't do any,
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I didn't do any research on it. I didn't read any, you know, literature on the subject. And and I didn't know if the, you guys mentioned the Criterion commentary. So I don't know if it was mentioned there, but the sense that I got is that he wrote this film or he wrote it, uh, maybe it was based on something else. I'm not sure um, if there was source material, Um, but I I got this feeling like, the screenplay, which he wrote with several other other people, I think there were five screenwriters on this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I I kind of got the sense that maybe this Hamlet resonances were found maybe later on, and maybe uh, during the writing of the script, they went, you know, this kind of reminds me of Hamlet, <laughs> and so they decided at some point either kurosawa in concert with his other screenwriters or alone while while they were filming to introduce some of these these echoes of of hamlet that was the sense that i got well there's certainly no echo of
0: of hamlet in the sequence at the end that we were talking about
2: no no
1: no
0: right and and that to me like the the whole last half hour of this film i mean you know all, all props to Coppola for the first half hour, but the last half hour to me is is just a powerhouse. All the way up to that ending, that beautifully kind of dark ending that yeah. leaves you kind of like, well, this is just going to continue no matter how much you crusade against it. As below, as above, so below. Uh, in, in a way, again, in dialogue with the previous film that we talked about, you know, this is actually the evil that's going to continue across generations
2: yeah we I think we've talked before in some of our earlier sessions about you know Kurosawa occasionally flirting with with sort of nihilistic uh, possibility, but usually not committing to it. This to me feels like a pretty nihilistic film,
1: yeah
0: it's it, i I think there's a lot of anger in this movie, yeah about the shape of the Japanese society is taking
1: yeah the corruption. I mean the way that the corporations were set up post war almost lent itself to the potential for government and private industry to you know conduct themselves in a less than uh, <laughs> honest manner if you unlike know. anywhere else in the world <laughs> well yeah but especially <laughs> in post war japan i mean <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. was it was it really was like these specific families were chosen Mm-hmm. by the government and given all of the you know uh machinations of power um to essentially build up these enormous corporations i mean and they and they are enormous corporations and they still are yeah uh and and so it was almost like uh unlike the united states where we have this i this idea however true or not it is that um businesses succeed through innovation and success. In Japan it was businesses succeed because the government says they do, more or less. Uh, it, it's particularly at the start. Uh, mm-hmm. They really did they really did pick the winners. And so I think that sort of planted the seed in a lot of the captains of industries, minds that that sort of back room, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, payoffs for contracts and things like that was you know, maybe not illegal, maybe just sort of like a different way of doing business as usual,
2: oh, yeah, and there's the, the, the scene where the, the 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 two groups are arguing over how much the kickback should have been. You're supposed to give right. us three billion and the guy says <laughs> ten percent is normal you got more than that what are you complaining about it's like yeah yep, yeah, this is just business as usual
1: yeah just another deal just another business deal right yeah yeah
0: I, I think of all the movies we've seen by Kurosawa this is the one that felt the most like it could have been an American movie with just a few changes.
1: Hmm. Well it definitely had that sort of um
0: it's not hard to see Matt Damon as the guy who's trying to bring down you know, the evil corporation.
2: It would probably be a little more melodramatic. Um, Well, this is a pretty melodramatic film. Um, I think, though, in an American film, the corporation would lose.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, you know, yeah, I mean, you get get this real sense in this film that the ones who are driven mad, you know, the ones who are um, committing suicide by jumping in front of trucks or um, you know, uh, being tossed out, threatened to being tossed out of windows. Um, or thrown into you know, a volcano. Oh my God. Wow. Into a volcano for, <laughs> let's wow. not forget that. Yeah. Or you, locked, away in a, locked away in a bombarded munitions factory uh, 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 being starved to death until they give up the goods. Uh, you know, uh, that they're all lower down you know the the, yep. the food chain, as it were and that the higher ups uh, they always have someone to take the fall for
2: yep and I mean the highest of the higher ups is entirely invisible
1: and In the highest yeah. of the higher ups yep you, 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 he's that's what the ending is pointing toward right because he gets this phone call the vice president who's really sort of like the top bad guy through the whole film yep Nashimura Nosh, oh, what's his name Nashimura uh, I can't think of it now uh, it's just yeah, the president, right? The, the vice president, yeah. The the father, uh, and, uh, yeah. yeah. No. Masuki Mori, yeah. Okay, Masuki Mori. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, he he plays yeah. Iwabuchi. Yeah.
1: So he he gets uh, the phone call from from the president at the end of the film, and I know this is what you're alluding toward, Jason. But yeah, it, you don't even see him on screen. Uh You don't hear his voice. And so you're left with the impression that even the vice president is being told to, you know, he's not being allowed to step down from, from the, uh, company, but he's being told to, you know, sort of take a vacation, just leave the country for a while until this whole thing kind of blows over. It, it's almost like, uh, that, uh, crime movie trope, you know, like, uh, yeah. just, just lay low for a while, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the same, the same sort of, um, uh, action that just a, a a lowly criminal would take. The vice president of this major corporation is yeah. going to yeah. do the same thing, and uh, and that wonderful last bit of dialogue where he says good night, and yeah. it's daytime, and he says, you know, in contra the uh, the film's title that he mistook day for night because he didn't sleep well. <laughs> you know, has a wonderfully kind of like poetic resonance for the film. Uh, you know, it sort of implies that. Uh, he too, uh, like the his underlings, uh, is n- not above the the uh, re- recrimination uh, that that only the only the guy at the very top is going to get by this without getting his hair mussed.
2: Yeah, this, God- I mean-
1: this godlike figure.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, we do have you know Iwabuchi paying. We, we see on the one hand his what he's willing to sacrifice, right? Like the, the scene with his daughter, where he drugs her and right. fools her. That's cold, man. Right. Um, but you know, then when she basically her, her 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 mind snaps, and you know Tatsuo comes in and displays her and says, "Look what you've done! Look what you've done!" You know, uh, what he's willing to pay. In order to gain what he's gaining is made very clear but you're right eric you know there's also an intimation that there's a cost mm. an internal cost for it um yeah, his, then- his
1: family has basically told him off and said We're, we never want to see you again yeah mm-hmm. they race out the door and then the phone rings yeah and instead of rushing after his his two children he goes and answers the phone like a good little yep. soldier.
2: Isn't, isn't like literally the last shot on the film him bowing to the phone
1: yeah, bowing, to, bowing the phone. to the
2: phone yeah what a great right. image that is
1: mm-hmm. yeah and I, I i thought for a minute i go is that like a japanese thing like <laughs> <laughs> or is that is that kurosawa being you know visually uh poetic i i wasn't sure
0: i'm gonna guess it's both <laughs>
2: I, I mean, I I don't know, but I would think that it would be exceedingly unusual for you to like bow to the phone after you ended a call, but that you know it's, it's Kurosawa using that that standard gesture as a you know the extent of his subservience is that he doesn't even the guy doesn't even have to be in the room, he's so servile
1: <laughs> right. it's yeah. like instinct, right, right. You know, I, Jason, it's it's interesting to me that you you love so much the ending of this film they're the last half hour of it uh because in reading the reviews there were more than a few critics who thought that the end of the film just sort of came apart and that it was uh anticlimactic would you like to counter that
0: (laughs) well they can have their opinion if they like (laughs) um because i the part of what i like is that we are kind of caught in this kind of like i mentioned like feels like the the cycles are con- is going to continue that yeah. this evil is going to continue to progress and i think it really fits the larger point kurosawa wants to make here which is about the corruption of society and how society how these are these instruments of the society have corrupted the entire larger world around them it does not feel satisfying in that the villains don't get their just desserts. um and, and it leaves you with this kind of Un- unresolved feeling, but I think that's very true to the real world. I mean, yeah, certainly comparisons to plenty of events in 2022, as much as you know, 1960 Japan.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I was that blindsided me when when that happened because I hadn't, I, as I said, I I knew some things about the film. i read a little bit, but I hadn't like read a plot summary or, or about the ending, and it was like, holy crap, Nishi's what? <laughs> the hell, um, that to me is something I was talking about earlier, which is you know, the kind of risk-taking like, that yeah. really great filmmakers make is, you know, especially in a revenge story, like if you're familiar with revenge stories at all, you know that a revenge story has to give you the climactic moment where the revenger and the person he's taking revenge on come together and the revenger says, ah, I, did all that. I got you, I'm gonna kill you. And you know, whoop, nope, don't get it. Yet. You just get, boom, not even on camera, he's killed, gone. Right. So much for that. It's like, uh, it's like, um, and that's that can be profoundly alienating for audiences because yeah. so much of so much of how we react to to films or novels or whatever is based on our previous experience of them, and when they don't correspond to our expectations, it's mm-hmm. it's really easy to be frustrated and disappointed by that rather than to recognize that what you're seeing is innovative. I, I was actually thinking about it when I when I when I watched it. Is it reminds me a little bit of the end of King Lear, actually, to bring the Shakespeare back in because the end of King Lear anyone who knew the King Lear story knew how it ended, mm-hmm. right? Um, Cordelia was saved. Lear survived. Um, good triumphed. That's that, that was the story, right? And that's what it looks like is going to happen in the play. We know a guard has been sent off to kill them. Um, and we're waiting for it to come back. And then, you know, Edmund has his like final moment where he says, you know what, I mean to do one good thing before I die. Quick, 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 go rescue them. And off they go and uh albany says the gods preserve them and literally, the next thing you hear is lear's inarticulate howl of despair and it's bringing into the body of cordelia and it's like boom nope not mm-hmm. the story you're not getting the story you're expecting you're not getting the comic resolution the story has always had i'm giving you something completely different and uh that was devastating for audiences Um, I mean, the the original version of King Lear was not performed for like literally 200 years after Mm. Shakespeare because uh, they they rewrote it to give it to give it a happy ending. Um, Especially, you know, in the 18th century, when there was so much of that, you know, very prescriptive literary theory about poetic justice and certain kinds of stories have to go certain ways and you can't have the innocent die in tragedy. They couldn't stand it. They just couldn't bear it. They literally rewrote it. And this to me kind of feels like that is, you know, you, you this is the kind of story we're watching. We're watching a revenge story. We know what happens in revenge stories, right? Um, there's always a cat and mouse game and it gets, it accelerates it, but the revenger, he's gonna win. He's gonna get, He's he, he might die, but he's he's gonna get his revenge because that's what the, the whole point of a revenge story is, right? Nope, uh-uh. sorry. Not only is he not gonna get it, we're not even gonna see him die. Uh, in fact, Watching the film, when when like Tatsuo and his sister drove past that car wreck, I thought, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah." Speaking of another visual clue, like the flag hanging yeah. out of the, of the birthday cake, you know, y- yeah. Yoshiko and Tatsuo driving by the car wreck, um, and not not picking up on the the visual clue themselves.
0: Well, we we've talked about this in a few different times, a few different ways. I think. Kurosawa would have been aware of the history of Lear.
2: Oh, sure, yeah.
0: Would have been aware of the fact this is, what, the 20th movie he's made. um, Would have, you know, very clear kind of vision of what he wants to create on the screen. Is great at creating endings that are both very resonant, but also a little ambiguous, as you were talking about with the ending of Seven Samurai. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he was comfortable with. It feels like this is the sort of thing he was comfortable with. Yeah. It's and you know, he it was still a few more movies before he started to hit his downward slide in terms of commercial liability. But I wonder if this was one of the films that well didn't we didn't we talk a little bit about how uh Yojimbo was a little bit of a reaction to the bad sleep well because uh the audiences were clamoring for for him to go back to um the classical Japan films.
1: Right. I think you mentioned that in in the Yojimbo know, episode. Yeah, yeah
2: it was it was like the next film, wasn't it? After this, yeah, Yojimbo yeah. came after this.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, well, we're
2: at an hour and
0: fifteen, so um, <laughs> kind of overdone <laughs> it tonight. <laughs> well, we kind of always end too by saying another pair of masterpieces.
2: Yeah. But unquestionably.
0: Now, we're, I don't think we've had hit a bad one yet.
2: I I don't think Kurosawa was capable of making a bad movie.
0: Yeah, not that I've seen them all,
2: but I, yeah, I don't think he was.
0: Maybe if we eventually go back and watch Senshiro Sugata or something,
2: yeah, maybe
1: (laughs) possibly. Yeah, I mean, he made a few when he was up and coming, he made a few sort of like pot boiler type films, you know, or, or, um. melodramas Mm -hmm. that are probably you know not so memorable um but once he hit his stride man uh he was unstoppable just probably i think probably the greatest filmmaker that ever lived yeah i would concur i think so at this point
0: having watched a dozen of his films um the man's mastery of the screen and, and composition. You can really see the evolution of it, the quality of his filmmaking between Stray Dog and the Bad Sleep Well, too.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that was one of the things I found myself thinking, uh, looking forward to this conversation is I think in some ways, um, given the, the, the generic similarity, um, uh, the Bad Sleep Well is just so much more, not that Stray Dog isn't technically proficient, but the Bad Sleep Well is just so much more technically proficient as a film it's uh, it's much more subtle uh i mean you, eric you were talking earlier about you know uh kurosawa constantly reminding us of how hot it was mm. which is a great thing to do but he maybe reminded us maybe i don't know two or three or 10 or 15 times more than we really needed to be reminded yeah you know um yeah. and he, he he he's uh he's much more by the time of bad sleep well he's uh i think he's much more willing to trust the audience to get it without having it being constantly reiterated through those those, those visual cues, mm. um, and uh, not the, again. I'm not I'm not trying to you know dis stray dog at all, which is a, which is a great film, but Kurosawa seems much more confident and assured in his audience's ability to get the point um, without without these uh, these you know constant signals, much more a rounded film, I think
1: that sleep well had moments that almost reminded me of kubrick in their, yeah in their, yeah just in the kind of dispassionate um sort of objective coolness about it
2: yeah
0: yeah and that's where i'll say like i'll i'll just uh, slightly contrasting opinion which is that stray dog fits the times in which it was made Yeah. It's a rougher time. It's a more unfocused time. There's less certainty. Um, It's a time when modern Japan was still in formation, as I said earlier, right? And and Kurosawa's career post war was also in formation, as opposed to the bad sleep well just a dozen years later, but Mm -hmm. uh, everything is different.
1: Yeah. Well, between stray dog and bad sleep well, you had. She's Rashomon. Yep. Akiru. Hidden Fortress, seven I think, right? Samurai. Seven Samurai, Throne yeah. of Blood. Yeah. So this is almost kind of like at the tail Hidden end of fortress, his yeah. his great period, right? Um, yeah. So you would so, expect that Bad Sleepwell would be much more technically proficient, particularly yeah. given the, the films that came in between that. And that's one of the things that, strikes me about kurosawa is it's not just his technical proficiency because certainly there are filmmakers who are who are maybe even better than kurosawa at that namely you know for example kubrick who i mentioned earlier maybe more technically proficient but there's a psychological complexity there's there's a whole range of other emotions that are available in a kurosawa film in addition to that technical prowess that just creates an altogether more broader uh, um, scope uh, and and much larger range of cinematic experiences.
2: Yeah, much as and I admire.
1: He, yeah, right, as much as we admire, say, Kubrick, for example, who I think is maybe one of the other great filmmakers. I always say the two Qs, mm-hmm. Kurosawa and Kubrick. Um, mm-hmm. And and also I would say that uh, Kurosawa is an enjoyable filmmaker. Yes. A lot of times, uh, master filmmakers produce um, w- marvelous uh, films, uh, unquestionably uh, cinematic masterpieces. But oftentimes they're not as approachable as these movies are. It's not in yeah. Uh, for example, like, yeah, Bergman, or or uh, uh, there's countless examples. Of, uh, you know, what's that Russian filmmaker who made those massive, like Andrei Rublev and Stalker and so
2: Tarkovsky. on? Tarkovsky.
1: Yes. Tarkovsky is often held up as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, you know, I mean, they're wonderful films, but they're not something I would watch for entertainment purposes. Whereas yeah. with the Kurosawa film, you get everything, you get the whole. Oh, yeah. The whole Happy Meal.
2: <laughs> yeah, you can watch them over and over and over again. Um, exactly. you, you couldn't watch Tarkovsky over and over and over again, but you wouldn't say, "I think I feel like putting a Tarkovsky movie in tonight." <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's it. Right. It's the rewatchable element to it, right? When we yeah. when we talked absolutely. Seven Samurai, Dom, you were like, "Oh yeah, I've seen this movie like four times, like, can count," because yeah. it just oh, yeah. gives you so much yeah. pleasure. Yeah. It's, it's an. It's,
1: yeah, I mean, it has as much psychological complexity as a Tarkovsky film, and you can eat popcorn while you watch it. You know, yeah. it's just, Kurosawa was able to understand what it was about cinema that could convey the human condition in a very specific way, very yeah, early, I, and he refined it mm-hmm. as his career went forward.
2: I, I think what makes him, for me, the master is that uh, density. Um, I, I can take your point, Eric, that you you make a case for for, for Kubrick as technically more proficient um but i think it's i think it's a close call to be honest um but i also think that you know for all of his technical proficiency kubrick is a very clinical filmmaker right um and kurosawa manages simultaneously to handle the technology side of it the technical side of it the the mastery of all of you know mise-en-scene and lighting and angles and costuming and everything
1: sound Um, music yeah. yeah
2: But yeah. also with with a, with 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 an emotional depth and complexity, and also with a real attention to 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 narrative in a way that is designed to make it uh, as as you said entertaining, often mm-hmm. often surprising, often un, you know you get unexpected things, but it's 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 never Cooper. I, I think I joked about this last time. I said Kurosawa couldn't make a short movie but it never feels like you're watching a long movie when you're watching a Kurosawa movie. You, know, you can watch yeah. like, three hours and 40 minutes of Seven Samurai, and it does not feel like it's a ponderous experience at all. Both of right. these movies, well over two hours. Neither of them felt like, oh my God, when's this going to be over? What's this so long? And you know, two, two, two hours and 20 minutes, two hours and a half. Mm. He, especially when Kubrick was making, when, when, when Kurosawa was making those films, those were long, even today, that, yeah. that's a long length for a movie unless it's like a you know a a marvel superhero movie or something where they have to justify this billion dollars of special effects by making it three and a half hours long yeah um it never feels slow um i think you can make a case that maybe stray dogs could have lost two or three minutes here and there but uh it certainly doesn't feel ponderous
1: it's also a testament to the skill of the actors that he chose as well oh yeah yeah
2: yeah
1: uh who were able like you know Shimura or or uh especially Mifune, yeah. uh, to, hold, to hold up the two more obvious examples. The, the, their ability to convey human emotion on screen is unparalleled. Yeah. Uh, a filmmaker like Kubrick, I think, would probably hesitate from getting actors with similar skills, because I think it almost would take away from the attention.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've always thought that and much Kubrick. as I, and, 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 you know, Clockwork Orange is one of my favorite movies. There isn't a, right. There isn't a Kubrick movie that I don't admire. But right. they are—they are never films that engage you in the emotional lives of the characters. Really, it's always cold. It's always distant. Um, yeah. yeah. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. But Once it's... he gets
0: past *Paths of Glory*, because I was yeah, completely yeah. emotionally enraptured by *Paths of Glory*. Mm. Not—I uh, was—that was a movie that felt like it took five minutes.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I, I still think that's one of his best films.
0: So Eric, you were talking about uh, Redbeard and Kagemusha for
2: next time.
1: Yeah, I, that works for me. If if you guys would like to, uh, I I have never seen Redbeard, and it's been a very long time since I've seen Kagemusha. So that seems like it's kind of bookending two periods as well. Yeah. It's the last Matone film, and it's sort of like the beginning of the last Kurosawa era. Yeah. So I exactly. thought it would be an, I thought that would be an interesting uh, contrast.
2: Yeah, I do have Kegamush. I'll have to look around. I don't have a copy of Red Beard. I'll have to see if I can find it available to watch uh, somewhere. Um, I have
1: seen it. I can send you a link. I, I believe oh, it's. Okay. on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I have seen it, but like literally forty years ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, but I first saw I first saw Kurosawa when I went to university, and there was a local rep cinema. And it was a great place for like showing old films, and mm-hmm. they they must have had a Kurosawa retrospective or some point something at one point because over over a course of weeks I saw like Seven Samurai, Hidden Fortress, uh, Ikiru, Red Beard, Sanjuro, and Like all my first Kurosawa exposure wow. came then, but I haven't seen Red Beard uh, since then.
1: Um, the rest well, that of must have, that must have cemented you as a fan, then. Oh God, that. yeah. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That,
2: that, was, that was around the time when the, the full-length version of Seven Samurai was actually made available for the first time in North America, as opposed to the truncated version wow. of that was released.
1: Yeah, that's still um, unbelievable, to, unbelievable to me that for however many decades it was, it was not seen in its full form.
2: And I remember, I remember sitting in the theater watching it, thinking, "Holy crap! Where has this been all my life? This is just <laughs> unbelievably <laughs> good filmmaking." Um, and that that opinion has never changed.
1: Jason, just of out of a, curiosity, I know I know we're approaching an hour and a half, but just out of curiosity, what was your first Kurosawa film?
0: What was my first Kurosawa film that I ever saw? Yes. Uh, I think it's looking over the list. Oh, Rashomon. So Rashomon, Rashomon. Rashomon at the screening during college at college, because mm. you know it had been. It it was a you know the Rashomon moment has been uh, yeah. immortalized. We were actually debating Rashomon in a college philosophy class, and happened to be playing at our local kind of rep screen that we had. So yeah, Rashomon was my first. I haven't seen it since then. I'm I'm anxious to see that again at some point, especially since I now know it. It's pretty early in his career in terms of his great period.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right at the beginning. Mine was an oddball, it was Dreams. I saw it at a local oh, theater, really? one screen, yeah. One screen theater, I was, I don't know, I think I was 14 or 15 years old. And it was showing at our our neighborhood cinema, Dundee Theater, and uh, I just went on a whim to to go see it. And yeah, that was it, uh, with no context whatsoever. So you can imagine that was an interesting cinema going experience.
2: I can imagine, geez. <laughs>
1: Particularly for a fifteen-year-old,
2: I would think that because it's a, uh, as Kurosawa films go, it's a great film, but it's it's yeah. not as uh, as accessible, I think, as some of the others.
1: No, not at all. But but the great thing about Dundee is that they had a uh, a video store attached to it, mm-hmm. and uh, they had just about every single great Kurosawa film uh, for rent on on VHS. Oh, nice. So, After I saw that, I immediately went next door and uh, picked up two or three. I think it was uh, Seven Samurai, Rashomon, and I can't remember what the third one was. Um, It was at the recommendation of the person working there. Mm. So they they probably just picked out the the most uh, frequently rented titles.
0: I remember Renting Ron at a local video store. Actually, the video store inside our local Fred Meyer, which is like a wall, a classier Walmart um, because Siskel and Ebert had raved about it so much. Uh, yeah, And being like blown away, even on the crappy VHS tape, by the, the color of the energy and the beauty of it. Might be one of the reasons I still love that movie so much.
1: That review is on YouTube, by the way, if oh. you care to revisit it. Okay. Yeah. And you're right, it was a glowing review. I mean, uh, either one of them, they you could see them talking about it and they were like leaping out of their seats. <laughs> 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 they could like barely contain themselves. Yeah, um, when we
0: talk about Kage Musha, um, I have uh, like a connection to Rand I want to talk to between those two films because um they are anyway, it's a, a topic for next time.
2: Very good. Sounds good.
0: Okay. It's been great as always. Thank you for taking the time to hang out and talk about these
1: great movies.
2: Thanks for hosting us, Jason. We appreciate it.
1: Same here. My pleasure.